0: This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. Hey folks, Ben Mathis here. I'm taking this week off, so today's episode is a rerun of my interview with the brilliant Neil deGrasse Tyson. Then I'll be back with all new episodes after Labor Day, starting with Brian Cranston next Tuesday and some terrific guests all throughout September. So enjoy this classic episode, have a great Labor Day weekend, and I'll see you in September. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis and welcome to Kick-Ass News. Folks, my guest today is someone I've been wanting to have on the show ever since I started this podcast over two and a half years ago. Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson is an acclaimed astrophysicist, author, and a highly popular science communicator who has over 7.5 million followers on Twitter. Since 1996, he's been the director of the Hayden Planetarium at the American Museum of Natural History in New York City, where he founded the Department of Astrophysics in 1997. In 2001, Tyson was appointed by President George W. Bush to serve on a 12-member commission that studied the future of the U.S. aerospace industry. And again in 2004, Tyson was appointed by President Bush to serve on a commission on the implementation of the United States space exploration policy, dubbed the Moon, Mars, and Beyond Commission. From 2006 to 2011, he hosted the television show Nova Science Now on PBS. Since 2009, he's hosted the popular weekly podcast Star Talk, and a spin off series for television began airing on National Geographic in 2015. In 2014, he began hosting the television show Cosmos, a successor to Carl Sagan's 1980 Cosmos series, which has won four Emmy Awards, a Peabody Award, and two Critics' Choice Awards. Dr. Tyson's monthly essays appear in Natural History magazine under the title Universe, and he's a frequent guest on shows like The Daily Show, Conan, Late Night with Jimmy Fallon, The Rachel Maddow Show, and Real Time with Bill Maher. He's a recipient of 18 honorary doctorates, the NASA Distinguished Public Service Medal, and the U.S. National Academy of Sciences Public Welfare Medal. He's been named to Discover Magazine's list of the 10 most influential people in science, Time Magazine's Time 100 list of the most influential people in the world, and People Magazine has named him Sexiest Astrophysicist Alive, although even he admits it was a pretty short list. He's the author of 14 books, including his latest, which is currently the number one New York Times bestseller. It's called Astrophysics for People in a Hurry, in which he brings the universe down to Earth, explaining things like the Big Bang Theory, black holes, and quantum mechanics succinctly and clearly with a signature wit that has made Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson a household name. On today's show, Dr. Tyson will explain why he wanted to write an easily digestible book of space science that's not for dummies, but for people who want to learn more and don't have the time in their busy lives. He discusses how he uses popular culture to interest people in space and shares his thoughts on how movies and television portray science. He reveals just how rapidly the universe was born and why the debate over the Big Bang Theory versus intelligent design really shouldn't be a debate at all, because as he says, science doesn't care about your opinion. Plus, we talk about wormholes, Einstein's thought experiments, what's in the dark areas of the night sky, how to gain what he calls a cosmic perspective of the universe, and whether Pluto can ever get back in his good graces. Coming up with the brilliant and funny Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson in just a moment. Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson is an astrophysicist with the American Museum of Natural History in New York City, where he also serves as director of the Hayden Planetarium. He has a new book that's number one on the New York Times bestseller list called Astrophysics for People in a Hurry. Dr. Tyson, I'm delighted to finally have you on the podcast. Well, thank you, but only if you're in a hurry. That's what this book is about.
1: (laughs) (laughs) If if you have time, no, this is is the wrong interview.
0: (laughs) I have All the time in the world for you. Um, It's an interesting title because I wonder, were you tempted to call it Astrophysics for Dummies? Oh Well, so first, that title was already taken. But second, it's not for
1: dummies. It's for people who are curious, who are busy, you know, have a full-time job or full-time in school and have kids, whatever. But you retain a level of curiosity about what's going on in the universe and you want it sort of consummate that 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 curiosity and 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 this is a book that enables that to happen but that nothing is dumbed down in it it's not a it's not a a well let's sit down and let's say no no it's like <laughs> it, it's in your face <laughs> and it's a it's a curated offering of some of the most mind-blowing things in the universe which ideally will Pique your appetite beyond the book because it's a book of an accessible length, and if if after this you say, "Wow, I want to learn more about the, the 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 multiverse and dark matter, dark energy," then you go on to long books and long videos and whatever else. But this this will enable you to be fluent the next morning at the at the water cooler at the office.
0: Yeah, because you're dealing with a lot of things like black holes and dark energy, dark matter, things that people probably have seen a headline about, but may not really have a detailed understanding of exactly what they are, but they're certainly things that have probably rung a bell at some point with people.
1: Yeah, precisely. So, uh, you know, and also exoplanets, these are words and terms mm-hmm. we know you've heard, you, and you. we know that you, it piqued your interest when someone mentioned it. And this organizes that information into a coherent arc from the beginning of the universe right on through uh, the final chapter, the 12th chapter, which I call reflections on the cosmic perspective, which is how learning about the universe can transform who and what we are relative to civilization, to the earth and to the universe itself.
0: Yeah. And I really enjoyed it. I thought it was really easily digestible. Um, I wonder when you were a kid, say in elementary school and learning about science, what was the first revelation that really blew your mind?
1: Uh, okay, my, the first visual revelation was
0: the sky
1: of my local planetarium, the Hayden Planetarium, here in New York City, where I'd just never seen a night sky like that, growing up in New York City, where you look up, the first thing you see is a building, and then there's light pollution, and in my day there was air pollution, so that was something beyond anything I had experienced, especially the age of nine, so I was so thoroughly... Uh, Star struck by this so that so what blew my mind wasn't so much that it was different from what I was Accustomed to but that I was able to bask in the limitlessness of it. I was attracted to the unknown of it and I think if you're going to be a scientist, you have to ultimately learn to love the questions themselves Which is the opposite of how a journalist might leave you thinking about it where they Uh, A journalist will say, here's this great discovery, and it just came out, and everyone else is going back to the drawing board, and and articles are pivot on discoveries, and you completely lose the process of science that leads up to it. That process is, that's where the drive matters, and that's where the urge to explore and discover is manifested. When you put that together, you get this deeper understanding of how it all comes together.
0: And you throw a lot of references to pop culture in your speeches and in this book. Um, do you see that as sort of your way of meeting people where they're at when you're trying to get people interested in science?
1: Well, I didn't plan it to be that way. It evolved to that organically. Mm-hmm. So here, here's how it would be. I would be in the street. Someone would ask me a question and I'd, about the universe, and I would start answering, and I would monitor, are they drifting? <laughs> are they falling asleep are they looking at their watch you know and i say okay that's not working let me use a different word or a different analogy or come at it from a different angle and so empirically the trial and error of trying to communicate in a way that keeps people's interest landed me on the fact that if you come to the come to the party with a scaffold of pop culture If I clad your scaffold with science, Mm -hmm. then you are already halfway there because I don't have to explain to you who Beyonce is or what (laughs) Game of Thrones is or what, you know, um, or who Spider Man is or Iron Man. You know, there's just (laughs) things that are out there that we've all heard of. Whether or not you are followers of these things, they're out there. And knowing this, and by the way, that's some effort of mine to stay current with that. And that doesn't accrue to me being a better scientist. It, it accrues to me having more tools to bring the science to you. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm happy to do so, but uh, I'm just saying I don't get science credit for having done so. <laughs>
0: yeah, I imagine that in some cases, uh, it's probably used against you even among scientists.
1: Well, in in my field, Decades ago, that was the case, Mm -hmm. but we, we learned, we, we, we learned mainly through Carl Sagan, who initially people are saying, why are you doing this? Carl Sagan appeared on the tonight show. Oh my gosh, that's not a documentary. That's not news. That's entertainment. The scientist has no business on there, and he did it anyway, like in their face. And as a result of this, there were pulses of science literacy that worked their way into the general population. Because of his appearances on these shows and the fact that he wrote for Parade magazine, oh my gosh, you should be writing journal articles for a peer-reviewed journals. And so that there was blood on the tracks from that time. And I'm in a field cleared by Carl Sagan, I and many others. So yeah, at as a minimum, you don't want it to hurt you. Uh, you want it to at least be neutral. Mm. And in my field, it's neutral bordering on slightly positive (laughs) to engage in this kind of
0: activity. Well, well, how about at home? Do you ever find yourself in these lame dad moments when you try to make a pop culture analogy and your kids are just like, no, 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 dad, what are you doing?
1: Oh yeah. In fact, they're my, they're my training ground.
0: Yeah. Yeah,
1: Okay. (laughs) Yeah. My kids are like 20 and 16. So they're like all right where they should be to be in touch with this. Uh, my son once got completely on my case for saying <laughs> the Game of Thrones when it's just Game of Thrones, right? <laughs> that's, that's the level of editing that, uh, and coaching that I'm getting from, yeah. <laughs> it is, it's fine tooth comb. Cause that as a minimum, they don't want me to embarrass them. Yeah. So I think that's their motivation, not that they want me to do what I'm doing better. It's just, a, I think, just protecting their own.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, Well, since we're talking about relating science to pop culture, does it bother you when you see sci-fi movies like Jurassic Park or Aliens or shows like Westworld? kind of perpetuating the Icarus narrative of, well, we better not reach too far or don't try to do God's work because it's all going to go horribly wrong. Do you worry that those kind of portrayals run the risk of making science the enemy?
1: Yeah. You know, I side with with Ray Bradbury on this, who, a great science fiction author, as we know, someone complained, why do you keep portraying futures that are so bleak and so dystopic? And he replied, I I paraphrase, uh, that No, these aren't the futures that I want us to aspire to. These are the futures I want us to avoid. So when scientists are shown involved in projects that end up completely counter to the progress of civilization and humanity, almost always the person in charge or has power is not a scientist. It's some evildoer, some politician, some some despot. (laughs) And they've taken control of the scientists' experiments to use for nefarious means. That's typically what happens. Okay. And that's actually more accurate than a scientist achieving some position of scientific power and then wielding it in a high position of political power. Okay. But you just never see that.
0: So you're not the bad guy here. You're the good guy. You're just the conduit for bad things sometimes Well, as a scientist.
1: <laughs> I'd like to think that. <laughs> Uh, That I, as a scientist and my fellow scientists, we have wisdom to guide society (laughs) and how to use the tools and methods, uh, how to use the new inventions that might come out of our scientific ideas. You don't want to be completely disconnected from it. Right. In the way Einstein, knowing about E equals MC squared because he invented the equation, discovered the equation, that he noticed that Nazi Germany was working on a bomb. He warned Roosevelt, if they make a bomb before we do... That could completely change the course of the war. We started making the bomb. And then he saw that Germany was done. We were conquering Germany. There's no way they could be sustaining the effort to make a bomb. Then he urged Roosevelt to stop, but we continued.
0: Well, speaking of Einstein, in the book, you point out that Einstein hardly ever set foot in a lab. He didn't test phenomena or use elaborate equipment. He performed what he called his famous thought experiments – Um, Today, science seems so high tech uh, with lots of fancy toys and scientists are working on more esoteric things like quantum physics. Is there still room for a lone guy like an Einstein or a Newton to just sit and think on a problem and suddenly have that kind of game changing aha moment that overturns our understanding of reality?
1: Yeah, I think. Oh, by the way, his uh, Einstein's just to be clear, Mm -hmm. Einstein's relativity theories didn't overturn Newton's theories of motion and gravity. Mm -hmm. What they did was they subsumed them. So, for example, if you write down Einstein's equations and you put low speeds and low gravity in his equations, they become Newton's equations. So we learned that Newton's equations are a limiting case of a deeper understanding of the universe. So in this sense, it's not that scientists go from one truth, oh, that's not the truth anymore. Let's go <laughs> walk over here to this other truth, and we'll hover here and defend it to death until we have to move to some... That's not how science works. That's a caricature of how science works. And so there's not, nothing in principle to prevent a scientist sitting in an armchair. This, in this capacity, it could be a philosopher as well, and deducing the nature of the universe through thought experiments. Here's the problem, the challenge is you don't know what's not known without experiments, and you don't know what is known without experiments. Right. So somebody's conducting these experiments. The, the difference is you can, no, you can no longer really do that in your home lab. Okay. You can't, we, those are huge collaborations. So the Large Hadron Collider Particle Accelerator, for example. Right. That's a, there, there are thousands of scientists working on that so 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 with that you the experimentalist is a collaboration the theorist can still be kind of a lone wolf mm-hmm. but they'll have to at some point be referencing the these scientific results as they come from experiments that are conducted.
0: Yeah. And in your book, astrophysics for people in a hurry, you open with the admonition that the universe is under no obligation to make sense to you. That's for damn sure. (laughs) Which reminds me of your t-shirts that you say, uh, science doesn't care about your opinion. Do you think society has gone a little too far with this idea of, well, there are no wrong answers. Everyone gets a trophy.
1: Yeah. They're, they're completely wrong there. So what, But I I don't want to beat them on the head. I want to say, unfortunately, in your schooling, you did not learn what science is and how and why it works, and that it is the most potent means of establishing what is and is not true in this physical universe than anything else we have ever devised. So that's how you need to think about Mm -hmm. it. And if they had that understanding, they would not be going forward with, with that level of skepticism of established science.
0: We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more with Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson when we come back in just a moment. Today's show is brought to you by Resume Writing Sucks. Looking to land the best internship? Recently graduated and looking to stand out in a crowded field? Or maybe it's just time to start something new? The thought of a new opportunity is exciting, but the hassle of updating your resume can be anything but. And there's nothing worse than showing up to an interview for the perfect job without a resume that truly reflects your aptitude for the position. Thankfully, ResumeWritingSucks.com is an all-in-one platform that can solve that problem forever. The RWS software perfectly tailors your resume for the job you want by scanning and editing it in real time. It takes you through the job searching process from start to finish, covering every detail of securing a position at the workplace of your dreams. And best of all, it's completely free. Your resume can make or break the chances of getting the job you want. So head over to ResumeWritingSucks.com and start creating your perfect resume today. That's ResumeWritingSucks.com. When our phones are our very own tailor-made media universes and our social media feeds are seeded with opinions and lies, how can we possibly find common ground, especially when our politicians are getting more entrenched by the day? Thankfully, there is one way to maintain a level of frankness and transparency in your media. Listen to On The Media. WNYC's weekly investigation into how the media shapes our worldview. While maintaining the civility and fairness that are hallmarks of public radio, the team at On the Media tackles sticky issues and untangles this era's most intractable questions. Brooke Gladstone and Bob Garfield are your hosts on a search for the truth in a 24 hour news cycle. Catch them on their weekly podcast, On the Media on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the show. Do you ever get people who say, well, what's the difference between your Big Bang theory and my opinion that the universe might have been created by some sentient being?
1: Oh, because we have data. <laughs> That's the difference. <laughs> yeah, and your next point is <laughs> we, have, we have observations, experiments that give us data Yeah, in support of the idea that the universe was once the size of a, a pinpoint. And yeah, yeah, we got that one.
0: Well, is it ever <laughs> frustrating when scientists like yourself say, well, we don't really know what came before the big bang. And then creationists jump in and say, well, you don't know what came before. So must've been intelligent design. It's a little bit like saying I'm right. And a little kid says, well, I'm right. Plus infinity.
1: (laughs) So, so the, it's not disappointing. The fact that there are unknowns that remain in my field, those are exciting. They're not disappointing. They're exciting. And right. We don't know what was around before the big bang. We have some ideas. There might've been, there might be a multiverse that multiverse would still be there in existence if you now want to say well you don't know what that is therefore God well the philosophers have a term for this it's called God of the gaps mm-hmm. and I've said this on video but it's been misquoted uh, many times but here's the full the full quote if to you God is where science has yet to tread then God is an ever receding pocket of scientific ignorance. And then, so you just got to deal with that, <laughs> yeah. right? And so considering that if you can if you if that's what it is, then you have to be ready to constantly redefine who God is to you mm-hmm. simply because science is working its way into those realms where God has yet to tread.
0: And you do start the book by talking about the Big Bang. Um, you illustrate just how quickly the universe expanded in those first moments. Can you run through the rough timeline of the birth of the universe for us?
1: Sure. So you go back to the early universe where all of our evidence shows us that the, uh, the universe was hotter and denser in the past than it is today and then it will be in the future. You take this all the way back, 14 billion years the universe is a seething cauldron of matter and energy transmuting into one another back and forth incessantly. As the universe begins to expand and cool, you end up, quote, freezing out of this soup certain particles that no longer can become energy because the energy level of the soup isn't high enough. So you can run the calculations and you find out that, yeah, it's going to make atomic nuclei. 90% of which will be hydrogen, and 10% helium. You calculate this, and as the universe continues to cool, does it make more particles? No, because it can only make heavier particles under higher temperatures. But in higher temperatures, it didn't even have the base particles to make heavy elements yet. You, You run the clock, and you see what effect these various conditions have on the behavior and conduct of matter and energy. And that's how we come up with all these scenarios that sound like like we were there, but uh, giving the other ancillary bits of evidence we have, it enables us to construct a narrative for what actually
0: happened. What amazed me is that it sounds like the biggest part of this happened within a matter of seconds or milliseconds. Uh, from from a teeny yes. dot to this expansive universe.
1: Yes, and that's part of the the fun way to describe it. I give a whole a whole description that the forces themselves are revealed in the expansion of this primordial soup, and then the earliest particles and neutrinos are released, and and all of this, and then I and then I say one second of time has passed yeah. since the beginning.
0: <laughs> yeah. So
1: yeah, that's that's so the book begins that way with a chapter titled. In the beginning, of course, that's how you'd want to begin a book.
0: Yeah, it definitely puts things in perspective. Uh, Astronomers used to look into the sky and assume that wherever we didn't see light, there was just nothing there. Turns out there's a lot going on in the cosmic flyover country. Uh, What's in the dark regions of space?
1: Yeah, so in the dark regions of of, of between the galaxies of space, we find uh, there's a a mysterious substance that's, that's responsible for... Most of the gravity we see manifesting in the universe and So we call that dark matter, but we don't even know if it's matter. It's really dark gravity Because we measure the effects of gravity on things Uh, so, so, So there's that then we know that there's a mysterious pressure in the vacuum of space Forcing the universe to accelerate in its expansion. We call that dark energy. We don't know what's causing that either especially since it's operating against the wishes of gravity So that's some spooky stuff. We don't know what that is either. And you combine these two and they permeate intergalactic space. They account for 95% of everything that's driving the universe.
0: Wow. And this dark energy that you just mentioned, it's a little bit depressing because you say that because of dark energy, anything not gravitationally bound to the neighborhood of the Milky Way will keep receding farther and farther. Does that mean that the day may come when we won't be able to see anything outside of our own galaxy?
1: Yes, in fact, and that's the spookiest part. As things begin to accelerate, you'll accelerate galaxies out of your horizon and sent it into the unknown beyond. Everything in our night sky other than the stars, but I'm talking about all the fuzzy objects that represent galaxies that span across the depths of time and space, all those galaxies will eventually expand beyond our horizon, leaving us with no hint of what the history of the universe might have been, and uh, this is a nightmare for me because <laughs> we 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 do this, and then I say, "Oh, um, <laughs> you're out of a job." <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, we, as far as we know, they're just stars, and unless we keep keep good notes in this generation. And, and bury them so that post-apocalyptic generations can see them, they will not even know that an entire chapter of the universe has been ripped from their awareness. Wow. So what we need to do is keep records and then bury them or something so that post-apocalyptic civilizations will have access so that they will know that there used to be galaxies out there, and these galaxies, which we see out in space and through the depths of time, that we, we obtained all of our knowledge about the Big Bang and the large scale structure of the universe and the evolution of time itself. We learned all of this from these galaxies. Mm. And if you don't have galaxies, because they all accelerated beyond your horizon, you cannot possibly know what the universe is like. Wow. And and I lay awake at night wondering, is there some chapter ripped from the book that we are trying to write of the universe And a chapter that we don't even know was there. Wow. Which if we discover it would help so many things make sense to us. But today do not. I lose sleep over that.
0: You end the book by talking about the cosmic perspective. What is the cosmic perspective and how does one attain that?
1: Oh, it's only for the few. (laughs) (laughs) An exclusive. No, cosmic perspective is for everybody. And what happens is. Um, You learn about how big the universe is, and how small we are relative to it. It's very good at dismantling egos, and readjusting human hubris. Because so often we want to think of ourselves as special because of how different we are from one another, from the other animals in the animal kingdom, from plant life. And by the way, the cosmic perspective doesn't have to only come from the universe. And I give an example of it coming from biology, so here, in this example, there's, if you take one centimeter of your lower colon, in that one centimeter lives and works more bacteria than the total number, number of humans who have ever lived. Wow. And you like to think that you're in charge, <laughs> that we are great and bacteria are small and insignificant. But in fact, <laughs> all you are to the bacterium is a darkened vessel of anaerobic fecal matter. (laughs) That's all you are to the bacteria, no matter what else you think of yourself. And if you get them upset, they will remind you that they're actually in charge because they'll run you to the bathroom (laughs) six (laughs) times an hour if you disturb their equilibrium. And so the real answer here is we need them to digest our food and for our survival, they need us to provide this vessel for them to thrive. We're neither above nor below them. We are participants in the same vessel in an ecosphere that has this kind of scenario playing out everywhere the interdependence of life forms. And so that is, well, we're not separate and distinct and better. We are basically the same. And the molecules and atoms in our body are traceable to stars that manufacture them. It's not that we are in the universe. It's that the universe is in us. We are great because we are the same as the universe, not because we're different. And so I'd like to think that after dismantling your ego, I (laughs) rebuild it, but into a way that has you look differently about life on Earth.
0: Yeah, and it was interesting because I've heard you say that that's a good justification for why people shouldn't criticize scientists who might want to put certain genes from animals into humans to be able to regrow a limb or something because it's we're all made up of the same stuff, essentially.
1: Oh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'll have more to say about in the that in the coming weeks with some, a Twitter stream and things. But basically, that's right. It's a reminder. When they put a fish gene into a tomato and people freaked out, <laughs> uh, it was... But why why are you freaking out? it's a reminder that we all have common ancestry on this planet Earth. We realize we have forty percent identical DNA to a yeast cell just to put this in perspective that would be a genetic cosmic perspective if you will mm-hmm. so yeah, oh yeah <laughs> you're not above or below or we are we are next to one another yeah all. Trying to make a make a living on this on this planet.
0: Well, you know, Doctor Tyson, with your show Star Talk and all the books and the speaking tours and Cosmos, it's probably easy for people to forget that you're not just a popularizer of science and a media celebrity. You are still a working astrophysicist. So, tell us, where is your research focus these days? Well, I'm trying to resurrect it. I've been so <laughs> distracted by the book,
1: and and uh, we may be doing Cosmos again. So I got to get ready for that, but um, I have several various projects that I'm first going to attach to others who have it. their train is in motion, and then I'm going to, um, uh, because you know what I want to do? This could be delusional, (laughs) and so at least I'm self-aware of my own possible delusions, but I want to just give all this up and just go back to the lab, Mm -hmm. and you'll never see me again. (laughs) I'll do that when there are other people on the landscape, when I can just back out, and you don't even notice, because there's so (laughs) many other things going on. And then, then you say, well, "Where's Tyson?" Oh, I, I haven't thought about him in years. <laughs> That's a good thing because that means I'm in the lab, um, uh, rejoining my my research colleagues.
0: Well, just don't eliminate your Twitter.
1: <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> uh, if you don't need me, you don't need me. I'm oh, okay. There, I'm a servant of curiosity. Oh, okay. If other people are serving the curiosity, you don't need me. I, I don't. My ego's not flowing through the the seven million, whatever the number is, yeah. followers. I mean, I'm shocked that there are that many followers. Shocked every day. (laughs) And I wonder if it's a mistake.
0: Yeah, that many people interested in science. Well, before we go, if you have just a minute here, I have a few listeners who had a couple of questions, if I could throw them a few quick hits to you. Mm -hmm. Um, Claire asks, do wormholes exist? As far as we know, no. And we know how to make
1: one on paper. Not out of paper, but... (laughs) (laughs) the the mathematics on paper we know how to make one but all evidence shows that they're highly unstable Mm -hmm. so you can pry open a wormhole but it would and you try to go in it would collapse around you immediately and that will not be pretty if that happens so right now we have to be we're stuck with it as being a, 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 a highly attractive solution to travel in the realm of science fiction rather than in science fact
0: Okay, now it would antimatter be able to counteract that
1: so antimatter is a normal part of of matter that we have in our in our lives. Uh, we invented it before science fiction writers got a hold of it i I feel compelled <laughs> to tell you, so <laughs> not all the cool ideas came from novelists yeah right? we have a Dan few, Brown didn't create it. Of our own <laughs> so uh antimatter is when combined with matter is a potent source of energy and it, it, it annihilates when you combine it with. Matter, you would need all the ways possible to distort the fabric of space-time to make a wormhole, and 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 or to or to provide the energy matter combination necessary for that. Uh, So, antimatter is, like I said, a highly potent source of energy, but but not something we see as a solution to those challenges. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, before we wrap up, real quick, is there any scenario in which Pluto could regain its title?
1: Get over it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, Pluto went to the gym and built up some muscle and it became bigger and, and more significant in its orbital space. Maybe. Okay. You know, our moon is five times the mass of Pluto. And <laughs> most Pluto lovers don't even know that. Just as in, there's six moons in the solar system bigger than Pluto. So okay. Pluto's really, it was never, uh, should have been called a planet. Uh, there are plenty of other vocabulary words we can use to describe it. And those words will be informative given what it is and its brethren that are orbiting out there in the solar system.
0: So I think Pluto's <laughs> happier there as a Poor dwarf planet. Pluto. Well, again, the book is called Astrophysics for People in a Hurry. Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson, thanks so much for joining me. Okay. And thanks for having me. Just a reminder that On the Media is WNYC Studios' weekly podcast investigating how the media shape our worldview. Hosts Brooke Gladstone and Bob Garfield are here to offer help if you, like them, are questioning the very nature of our reality. In a political and cultural moment so nerve-wracking, On the Media provides a weekly dose of sanity. Get On the Media on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again to Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson for joining me on the show. You can order his number one bestseller, Astrophysics for People in a Hurry, on Amazon. Or download the audio version for free with a special trial offer just for our listeners at audibletrial.com slash kickassnews. Subscribe to Dr. Tyson's fascinating weekly podcast, Star Talk, on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information, visit startalkradio.net. You can learn more about Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson in the Hayden Planetarium at haydenplanetarium.org/slash Tyson and join his seven and a half million followers on Twitter at, at Neil Tyson. Be sure to subscribe to Kickass News on iTunes and leave us a review while you're there. Don't forget to take our listener survey. It only takes 5 minutes at podsurvey.com/kick. You can visit Kickass News on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at @kickassnewspod. And be sure to recommend Kick-Ass News to your friends on your social media. And if you really want to help out, then donate to our GoFundMe campaign at gofundme.com kickassnews. Or click on the donate button at kickassnews.com. As always, I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at kickassnews.com. For now, though, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News. Kickass News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment Inc.